slower this time. <clears throat> the voice might hold out. So, we'll just uh, speed that a bit on. There we go. I'm interested in archaeology, as a lot of people do know, and especially archaeology that's got something to do with, with the Bible. And uh, uh, a number of years ago, um, they discovered this in Egypt. <laughs> it was called the Pyramid of Giza. It's kind of obvious when you're there. And uh, the archaeologists went inside it, and they went into the king's tomb, and then they went up in the, into a cavern above the tomb. And on the ceiling lintels of this cavern above the tomb is this um, ancient Egyptian cartouche um, with hieroglyphics. And when they translated it, essentially kind of translating from the ancient hieroglyphic, it, it kind of, the gist of it is, Gaz was ear. <laughs> um, it's builder graffiti. The guys who built the pyramids, essentially this is like the, the men of a certain village built this place. And uh, you know what it's like. You, you like a little bit of ownership of things whenever you do something like that. So this chapter answers a very simple question. Who built what? That's the question that's going to be answered. We're going to look at it uh, in those two question words, who and what, over this next few moments. So chapter 3 is that really long list of names that I read through extremely quickly and half-heartedly or ham-fistedly, whatever way you want to talk about it. Um, sorry. And it, it, you do wonder, why are all these names written there? It would have been so much easier... If the chapter was only like a couple, a couple of verses long and it said, and Nehemiah got everybody there to build a bit of the wall, the end, <laughs> would have been a lot easier, wouldn't it? And you would have volunteered to do the reading then, wouldn't you? <laughs> There's a reason why all these names are mentioned. It's because all in all, they are not just another brick in the wall. They're not just another brick in the wall. Our our culture basically says you are part of a machine, and that machine is to make money to fund everything that goes on. Do you ever feel like a number? That you're just part of the machine? Well, actually, Nehemiah sets a really great example of leadership here and says that you are known and you are valued. You are remembered. All these people with names that, frankly, I think are made up at times. They're all called Bob. Um, They've been remembered for 3,000 years or so for doing this. They're not just a number. They were remembered. They were known. They were valued. Lisa was talking about people's names written on the palm of God's hand. These people with random names are known by Nehemiah. They are known and they are remembered because they are valued. They are not just a number. A few years ago, actually about 10 or so, Dave Barber and I went to Tanzania. Um, we went with a friend of mine whose church group were going to help build um, a church out in a place called Arusha. And, and so we all turned up with all the locals and people were being set off on their jobs. So the, the, the main church was being built and Dave and I said, what do you want us to do? And I think they'd heard about my skills. And they said, can you go out the back? And, and, and nail this fence up, and also, can you just do a dry stone wall, right? Anyone with some eyesight will see that this dry stone wall has got concrete on it. <laughs> That's how good we are. But 
It took us hours. We sweated in the sun, and it was a great experience. And so what we did is we wrote our names in the concrete because we felt we've done this. We've built this wall to protect people falling into the river. We felt we'd done something. And whether we liked it or not, we felt we were part of the whole church building thing. So we put our names to it because we thought we're happy to be involved in it. Sense of ownership. A couple of years later, Phil Nixon and I went back out to, and I went to have a look at my wall, which was then in the river. <laughs> I've never been invited back. Um, but there's a sense of pride. I am part of this. My name is written there. Okay, like those pyramids in Giza, Gaz was here and to be remembered. We are called to build God's kingdom, but I wonder whether God allows us to have a bit of that kingdom as well. That actually when we build something, we can say, I was part of that. When we lead someone to Christ or disciple someone or be involved in spreading the gospel, we don't need to be proud about it. We just feel, my name is written on that. God has included me and I am known. I'm not just a number. Because each person has a part to play within the building construction of this, okay? Every person had a part to play. It was an incredibly highly organized piece of work. That's what people like about Nehemiah. It was very methodical, and that's why we can go through the whole system from anti-clockwise, from one gate around to the other. Highly organized, and it would only work if everyone did their bit. If someone didn't do their bit, one of two things happens, either... Someone else has got to do their job, so doubling up on work, or you leave their bit out, and a wall kind of is a bit pointless then, isn't it? If it's there as a defensive thing, you can see all the guards standing on their wall, and the enemy going, well, there's a big hole there, let's just walk through it. <laughs> if someone didn't do their job, the entire endeavor would have fallen to pieces. The entire endeavor was pointless. If this was a defensive city wall, if someone didn't do their bit, it was open. There was no point having one in the first place. Everyone had to play their role. Otherwise, someone else had to take the slack. That's what we read about the men of Tekoa, which you'll find out later, but I think it was probably a rugby club. <laughs> I don't know who's got his mind. <laughs> um, and they did extra. It says the men of Tekoa did this other bit because their nobles wouldn't take part. They wouldn't bend their shoulder. They wouldn't get stuck in. The thing is... In this, in this um, city, this, this, these walls, there were some obvious and really prestigious places. There was one called the East Gate, which um, if you follow the history of it, and, and, sorry, the future, it becomes what's known as the Golden Gate. It's a beautiful gate in Jerusalem. You can imagine someone who pulls a short straw who got the Dung Gate. And they were going, brilliant. I'm sure the Fish Gate wasn't so good either. Everyone had a part to play, some more prestigious than others, some bigger and larger and more obvious than others, some just had to get their hands dirty in a smelly pit. But if everybody hadn't done the bit they needed to do, the wall was pointless. Everyone had a part to play. And what about this, everyone? Well, we've got uh, a bit of a uh, problem at, at our house at the moment. We've got a front garden and a retaining wall. And this retaining wall has had a tree, it's had some roots, it's had lots of rain, a bit of snow. And at the moment, it's kind of pushing out a little bit, a few cracks. And you know, some unknowing bystander is going to walk past and find a wall on their face at some point. So we need to call in a builder because I'm not going to do it. Trust me, <laughs> wouldn't be a good idea. We call in the expert, don't we? 
So when Nehemiah is building the walls of Jerusalem, what does he do? Does he call in Balthus, Betus, and Procol Builders Incorporated? No, everybody who did this were all amateurs. They weren't professional builders. Do you notice? Not one of them is called a builder or a carpenter or a construction person. Going through, these are, these are the people that we've got, and they're kind of modern equivalents. We've got the high priest and the rulers, like a mayor. We've got a steel worker and a perfumier. We've got craftsmen. We've got families, all generations. We've got traders, market traders, and traders on the stock exchange. We've got a rugby team called the Men of Tekoa. We've got worship leaders. We've got a bunch of clerics, and we've also got a whole village coming together. Even though they didn't live in Jerusalem, they came along to help build it because they shared that vision. Not one of them are considered builders. They were just doing the best that they could do because there was a need. They got stuck in. They got stuck in because there was a need and there was a vision. It's remarkable that there are some churches that their youth work has absolutely skyrocketed because there's a, a bunch of 60-year-old or 70-year-old people have just said, we don't know how to do youth culture, but we're just going to go and love these people. And their youth group has exploded because people said, here's a need. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to get stuck in. I'm going to do a bit and saying I'm up for it. They weren't builders, but actually, to contradict myself, they were builders. Because back in those days, everybody built. You built your own house. You didn't call in the local construction people. You were involved in the construction of your house. So everybody had some kind of skill of that. They had some responsibility of building. And I wonder, just a little picture, a little sideline, how much do we build in our lives, our spiritual lives, or do we leave it to the experts? How much do we say, well, we come to church and we get fed there, and that'll do us. We get our weekly fix. We leave it to the experts to do the thinking for us. There's a horrific statistic just re released um, recently about um, something, I can't remember the specifics, but certainly in kind of 40, 30, 40% of evangelical Christians do not read their Bibles. Now, you could be going there tutting or squirming, I don't know, but that is horrifying because they expect to be fed by other people. We are meant to be building our own houses as well. We're all meant to be builders, not just leaving it to the experts. Didn't leave to the experts. Our faith building responsibility for us, our faith building responsibility for our children, our faith responsibility, our faith building responsibility for others. That's what we're called to. Notice that Eliashib, the high priest, he built the sheep gate, built by the sheep gate. His house was being built by someone else. We don't just look after our own house, we look after other people's. So amateurs, but also attitude. It's not just about, I mean, Lisa and I have this phrase, it's not, it's not about the aptitude, it's about the attitude. The attitude of their, uh, of the workers was really important. They may have had some aptitude, but they definitely had the attitude. As I said, Eliashib, high priest used to all the regalia, he got stuck in with the bricks and the mortar, sharing shovels with the guy next door. Not outside his house, but outside someone else's. Baruch zealously worked really worked hard outside someone else's house. Binui and Merimoth, they did more than one section. They weren't satisfied just doing one. They went and did others. And then the men of Tekoa, they did one section, and they went and did another section, which, because of what their nobles didn't do, you think they probably were making up for them, making up for their numbers. There were these nobles from Tekoa, and what are they remembered for 3,000 or so years later? They're remembered for not playing ball because they didn't want to get their hands dirty, or they didn't agree with Nehemiah's vision, or they didn't want to get stuck in, or they were too proud. It's not what we do. 
everyone else did, from rulers to market traders. But these guys didn't. And you know what? They missed out. It's that horrible feeling whenever you've come to a group of friends, and they've all been somewhere, like on holiday or at a party, and they go, do you remember that? Do you remember this? And you go, no, I wasn't there. You can imagine the builders go, hey, do you remember when we were doing the sheep gate, and that brick fell on Jacob's toe, and we laughed our heads off. And the nobles of Tekoa go, no, we weren't there. They missed out. And in a couple of weeks' time, I'm sorry to spoil it, but they actually do complete the wall. Okay, the spoiler. The nobles of Tekoa couldn't celebrate in the same way because they were not part of it. Have you ever led anyone to Christ? Have you ever got alongside someone and discipled them on their journey of faith from when they were a young Christian and getting alongside them got them really established? Have you ever shared your faith with someone not knowing if it's going to bear fruit or not? Have you played your part? Because let me tell you, you do not want to miss out on that. You don't want to miss out on that. The privilege of telling someone about Jesus that they are loved is immense. Don't think it's not for you. I'm not an evangelist. Yes, you are. We're all called to do it. Don't miss out on us. Don't be a noble from Tekoa. These were all ordinary people from all walks of life and backgrounds and uh, rallying around a shared vision, a shared vision from God to get a job done. That's the who. But what did they build? This is not a rhetorical question. What did they build? Walls. It's correct. (laughs) You were a bit dubious. (laughs) He's got a twist here. They built the walls. They built the walls of Jerusalem. The first part of this about who built what. um, The who was fairly kind of straightforward in my head. I thought, but the bit I really felt burdened by was this next bit. They built walls. But walls building has got a bit of a bad rep of late, thanks to this guy. <laughs> the whole thing about Donald Trump building his wall across America to protect the American interest. It's kind of, we don't like walls, do we? There's a poem by the American poet Robert Frost. I remember studying it many years ago. It's called Mending Wall. The first line of it is this, something there is that doesn't love a wall. And the poem is all about the fact that somewhere inside we just don't like barriers. We don't like those things that divide us. And whether it's the peace line in Belfast between the Shankill and the Falls Road between Protestants and Catholics, or the, the Arab-Israeli um, peace line that, happen, that, that they've got built up there that segregates people, or whether it's in these pictures, the 1989, 1990, the Berlin Wall coming down. There's something within us that doesn't like a wall. So I was intrigued. Why are we celebrating Nehemiah building a wall? Why are we celebrating that? Why are some walls, this wall, good and needed? First thing is it gives protection. A wall gives protection, it gives safety. We're going to hear in the next couple of weeks about some of the opposition that they face. But there's one truth that is clear throughout the entirety of Scripture and through the entirety of church history and probably in your life as well. There's one thing absolutely clear. There is always, always an opposition to God's plans. There's always an opposition to God's plans. 
Jerusalem was a city of refuge. Its name comes from the, the root means the city of shalom, the city of peace, the city of completeness, of wholeness. This is a place you can run to for rescue. Because the truth about this world, that we've been hearing about it in our, in our news and what Lisa was saying in our prayers, the truth is not everybody out there is nice. Not everybody in here may be nice. There are opponents who want to hurt, harm, and hinder the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the reality of it. There are people who want to hurt and harm us, and we need some level of protection, of safety. We need boundaries for our own sake. What parent doesn't put in boundaries that will say, here you are safe, out there is dangerous. We had, a, we, have a gas, we had a gas fire a number of years ago, and we had really small children. We didn't say, oh, we'll forget about a fire guard. If they get burnt, they won't do it again. <laughs> we wanted to protect them. We gave them barriers because it's a sign of love, not a sign of restriction. Walls are there for protection and safety. But I think even more, they're also, in this passage, and the story of Nehemiah about identity. When he asks, how are things, he mourns about the walls because... It, it was something to do with the people's identity and the definition was lacking. Although the people had returned from exile, they were living in ruins. They were living in the outskirts. They were still scattered. They had no complete identity, and the walls defined who they are. It said, essentially, welcome, you are now entering Jerusalem. You are now in. You know where you are. You are inside this place and a place of safety. And this is who we are. It gave a sense of identity and purpose. And this is the idea that really stuck with me that I want to share with us today. So if these walls defined the people of Israel, what defines us? What defines us as God? Is it just that we're nice and we serve good coffee? Is it just that we help people who've got a bit of debt and need a job? Something's got to be more about what defines us. What gives us our identity, our protection, and our security? What are the walls of our faith? A couple of years ago, um, you notice that a lot of new people have come to the church of late over the past couple of years, and there was one couple that uh, came and, and to kind of try it out the church. And nearly every week for a number of weeks, after the service, they would grab either myself or Lisa, depending on who was preaching, and sit us down and say, can I ask you a question? Subtext, 15 questions, all about the theology of the church. What do you believe about this? What do you believe about the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, women preaching, which is a bit obvious when it was Lisa they were asking. <laughs> what do you think about these ethical issues? What do you think about this? We want to know where do you stand on this. We want to know whether we can belong here. They decided to stay but they're not here now um, for lots of different reasons. They wanted to know, is this the place? We want to know who you are, whether we'll feel safe here. We've had other phone calls from people like that who've just dabbled and said, what do you think of this particular area? They want to know what we believe before they will settle down. And we say, this is who we are. Do you know what you believe? Do you know what defines you as a Christian? What do you believe? Because 
Peter writes this verse, and I think it's one of my touchstone verses. I've shared it with a lot of people, particularly the youth, when I was a youth minister here. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. If anyone, any of your friends, work colleagues, family, said, what do you believe? Could you put it into words? Could you say, this is what I believe? Could you say it with conviction? What if they challenged it? What if they disagreed with it? Would you water it down to make it palatable? What do you believe? Are you prepared to give an answer? Because the early church had a real problem with this. Once the first generation of the apostles kind of started dying off, the story of Jesus started to get diluted. And people started reinterpreting the story of Jesus. Now the eyewitnesses had gone. And a thing called heresy started growing in the church. Now today, we think those are just alternative viewpoints. But then... People were saying, this, this is really difficult stuff. These are the kind of questions they were asking or saying. They were saying, is Jesus God or is he just a man? Did he die on the cross or did he just swoon? Maybe it was someone else. Maybe it was just a vision. Maybe he wasn't real after all. He was just a mirage or he didn't actually seem really like God himself. Oh, I know I believe that as well. My, my mate Bob, well, Jesus told him a secret message, and he passed it on to me, and I'm passing it on to you. All these things started to grow in the church, and so the church said, we've got to write down and make a bit more solid what we believe, and hence the development of the creeds. This is one of the earliest creeds that we have. It's recorded in 1 Corinthians. And these creeds weren't just made up by some book. Going, right, I've got a, an assignment. I've got to write a creed. Where do I start? These were used within baptism. It's been used from the early church, from the very inception of the church. And this is one of the earliest. Paul says that I passed on to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500, most of whom are still around. Then he appeared to myself as one abnormally born. These creeds were based on baptismal vows that people would have said. These were the things that people held on to to say, this is who we are. The creeds protected, they gave identity, they gave security. There are a number of them in the scriptures. And we have this common one here. It's called the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the dead. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come and judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion and fellowship of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's what I believe. It is exclusive problem with the wall is often as exclusive. This is exclusive. Biblical Christianity is exclusive. You can't get away from Jesus is Lord being the original confession that Christians had to make. You can't get away from Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You can't get away from the fact that the early church said there's only one name given under heaven by which all people can be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. You can't get away from that. It is an exclusiveness to there. So yes, this wall is offensive. We'll have a look at that in a little bit more details in just a few moments. But this wall is also protective. Because within this, we can 
disagree within the safety and security of who we are. It mentions that there were two different goldsmiths at Nehemiah's wall. I imagine that, you know, Brown's goldsmiths and Johnson's goldsmiths, they may have been in competition with each other, but they were still part of the one project of building this wall. We can argue, we can disagree about lots of different things, and we can do it within the safety of the walls. But there must be some things that are non-negotiable, and these are the other things that were built. What else was built? It wasn't just the walls, but also towers. The towers were rebuilt. In fact, only one or two of them. The rest of the towers were still standing. And they built the walls against these towers because the towers were the fixed points. The towers were the, were the bastions that they, like, they secured things against. They were the things that didn't move. What are your bastions of faith? What are the parts that your faith holds on to? Is it your own personal experience or the person of someone else that you know? Is it the fact that the Bible um, can be proven to be pretty accurate? That's why archaeology and biblical archaeology appeals to me, because it gives me a sense of security. Maybe it's your testimony or the testimony of other people, the integrity of the gospel, the fact it makes sense in this messed up world. Maybe there are proofs of God's existence, or maybe it's other people around you who have supported you, and they're the bastions of your faith. What are the towers What are the non-negotiables? Because we can argue about hymn books and PowerPoints, fair trade or free trade, church governance, worship styles, women in leadership, or homosexuality, or any other ethical thing. We can argue and debate about those within the safety of knowing who we are before Christ. These are my tenets. God is real. God is the creator of the universe. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus lived, died, was resurrected from the dead, and will return again. I am a sinner, but I'm a sinner saved by grace, and we are all loved undeservedly and unendingly, and these are non-negotiable, and this I believe. Pretty exclusive, isn't it? They didn't just build walls or towers, they built gates. They built gates, 11 gates at all points of the compass. Gates are pointless without walls, and walls are pretty pointless without gates. And what do gates say? Gates say that in a city of protective and exclusive walls, gates say that you are welcome. Gates say that you are included. You are welcome. You are invited to come in. But it's also a place that we can protect people when they're vulnerable. The gates say you're welcome to come here to find security, to find protection, to find belonging, to find identity. It's the whole point of the people of Israel in the first place. It's the whole point of the church to be that voice of welcome to come into the kingdom of God. That is why there are so many gates. That is why in this chapter, which is about the building of the walls, very little is talked about the walls. The things that are spoken about in details are the gates. They put the doors and the bolts and the bars in place. The gates are the important bit. They rebuilt the gates because they are the points of entry and exit. You are welcome to come and you are welcome to go, but we're not going to change our fundamentals and our non-negotiables. And we are not going to change that Jesus Christ is Lord in this place. So here are the questions. What are our walls? What is your faith? Do you know what you believe? If over coffee someone said, I'm going to be a bit cheeky, so... What do you believe? Are you prepared to answer that? 
What are your towers? What are your bastions of faith support that you hold on to? What are the things that are non-negotiable in your faith? And where are your gates? Where are you willing to welcome people in, wrestle with tough stuff, have mucky neighbors who don't know what they're doing when they come into Jerusalem? You say, come on on in and you'll learn what it is to be a, a child of God. Where are your gates? And your walls, your gates, and your towers, one question, what state are they in? Are they standing strong? Are they in need of repair? Do they need a little bit of touching up here and there? Do they need rebuilding? Do they need building at all? Do they need deconstruction and reassembling? The question was, who built what? Matthew 16, 18 says this. Jesus said, I will build my church. A passage we're going to look at a bit more next week as we look at our vision about who we are here Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers do it in vain. The thing that unified all of this is that it was God's house, God's city, and we are God's church, and we have a part to play within it.